I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the RAIN Insights podcast from RAIN Network. In this podcast series, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Thomas Firestone, a partner in the Government Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice Group at Squire Patton Boggs. He represents companies and individuals before the DOJ, OFAC, state, and other U.S. government agencies. He previously spent 14 years with the U.S. Department of Justice, half as a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York, where he specialized in international organized crime, and half as the resident legal advisor at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, where he worked on U.S.-Russian law enforcement cooperation. He has represented clients in some of the most significant criminal cases in Eastern Europe and has twice won the State Department Superior Honor Award. He has served on two Ukrainian government anti-corruption commissions and has testified before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and the U.K. House of Lords and has been recognized by best lawyers in America in the area of white-collar criminal defense. He has also published extensively on issues related to transnational organized crime and corruption and sanctions and has appeared on ABC News, CNN, MSNBC, and ESPN to comment on matters related to Russian criminal justice and U.S.-Russian relations. Tom, it's always uh, great to speak with longtime friends. I'm not going to call you an old friend, but a longtime friend and, and colleague. And uh, thank you for the honor and privilege to discuss a very important topic uh, today. And because of your extensive background in um, what I'll refer to as anti-fraud, anti-corruption, anti-bribery, and uh, various legislative initiatives, I thought it might be an appropriate way to start, um, just have you give the audience a, a bit of an overview of your background, both in the public and private sector. Well, David, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure and always interesting to talk to you about current events, including important legal developments. On my background, I'm a partner at the firm Squire Patton Boggs here in Washington, D.C. A lot of my work uh, revolves around the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and sanctions. Um, I previously have been at various law firms, and I previously spent 14 years in the U.S. government with the Department of Justice, which I split between being an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York and serving as resident legal advisor at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. So issues of international crime and corruption are very near and dear to my heart. And Tom, I won't uh, go through the long list of matters that you've been involved with, but for purposes of the audience, Tom has always been focused on what I'll refer to as the developing world and some of the challenges that corporations face in um, doing, doing business and, and also in terms of um, navigating and getting good legal and common sense guidance uh, in terms of those markets. So again, Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, what brings us to this podcast is a relatively recent development, um, the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, uh, which is aspirational in its title, uh, but has a very, very interesting history and obviously uh, has brought a bit of symmetry to the anti-bribery and corruption efforts of uh, the U.S. Justice Department and uh, the SEC, 
as well as uh, UK and other jurisdictions' anti-bribery efforts. Maybe you can give us uh, just a, a bit of an overview on this act and um, its potential impact for companies. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Yeah, this was something I was involved in drafting, actually. I wrote an article about five years ago calling for criminalization of the demand side of foreign bribery. As we know, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act it criminalizes the giving of bribes by companies and individuals who are covered by the act's jurisdiction, but does not criminalize the demand side. So while it's a, it was a crime for a U.S. company to give a bribe to a foreign government official, it was not a crime for the foreign government official to take that bribe or to demand that bribe. Based on my work in Russia and my work with FCPA matters, I thought this created a very unlevel playing field. Every bribe situation obviously involves a bribe giver and a bribe taker. And it seems to me that the taker is just as frequently, if not more frequently, the initiator of the bribe for the simple reason that I think all of us would rather be receiving money than giving money. Um, but there, were no, there was no focus on that side of it. There was focus on the supply side, and partly that's because those are the cases that are I want to say easy to meet and uh, make. As former prosecutors, we know there are no easy cases, but they're easier than prosecuting the demand side. The demand side, you're, you know, it's very difficult to get evidence out of the foreign country. You may not be able to extradite the defendant. It creates diplomatic issues. So DOJ, I thought, had not really focused appropriately on the demand side, which left the U.S. government efforts to combat international corruption unbalanced and incomplete. So I wrote an article calling for the criminalization of demand side of foreign bribery. This was <clears throat> picked up on by several anti-corruption activists with Transparency International in the lead. They lobbied for the idea. I drafted the first, prepared the first draft of the statute. They then refined it and really shepherded it through, um, through the hill. Senator Whitehouse was one of the great champions, and it's really largely because of Transparency International and Senator Whitehouse that this was passed. So now, for the first time, U.S. law criminalizes demand side of foreign bribery, and I think it's a very important development because it lends much-needed um, uh, symmetry, as I think you said, to U.S. government efforts to combat international corruption. Tom, that's a, a great overview. Perhaps you can share um, with our audience specifically how the statute is supposed to work, it's designed to work, its jurisdictional reach, the protections it provides, and I'll call it the codification of certain uh, illicit acts. Sure. It basically covers um, foreign government officials and those acting on their behalf. So equivalent to who would be covered as a bribe recipient under the FCPA. So foreign government officials, um, intermediaries working on their behalf, others who may have influence over foreign government decisions. It prohibits them from soliciting, demanding, accepting um, bribes from certain covered persons, which include U.S. companies, U.S. individuals, and companies that are considered issuers under the Securities Exchange Act, i.e. the same companies that are covered by the FCPA. So it really covers American citizens, American companies, and then foreign companies that trade on U.S. stock exchanges. It 
criminalizes, as I say, the demand side, so it makes it a crime for the foreign government official to demand, accept, receive, solicit a bribe, and it carries a penalty of up to 15 years incarceration and substantial fines as well. So it's really designed as a deterrent to bribe-taking by foreign government officials. The hope is that when there are some high-profile cases, that will set an example for others and deter bribes. And also, I think one of the important elements of it is that it should strengthen the ability of U.S. and other covered companies to resist bribe demands. And I really want to stress this point because I think it's, it's very important. When I was working in Russia, I saw sophisticated companies use the FCPA as a shield against bribe demands. So they would be approached for a bribe, they'd be able to say, sorry, we can't do that. We could be criminally prosecuted under U.S. law if we were to make this payment that you're requesting. That's a good message to deliver. And as I say, I saw companies use that to resist bribe demands. But the message becomes much, much more powerful if they add to the statement, we can't pay a bribe because we could be criminally prosecuted in the U.S. If they add to that, and so could you, you're looking at 15 years in U.S. prison if we make this payment to you. That should help them resist these bribe demands. And when the word gets around, hopefully there will just be fewer bribe demands in general, thereby creating a safer, more transparent atmosphere for companies to operate around the world. One other important element of the statute is the reporting requirements. As we all know, the FCPA was passed in 1977. There were very few cases for the first 25 years, and it really only took off in this century. The FIPA, Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, as it's known, FIPA, puts, includes in the statute reporting requirements. So the Attorney General, the Department of Justice, is going to have to report to Congress on an annual basis about what cases they're making, what resources they need um, in order to make more cases, what the state of international corruption is. That should incentivize them to bring cases right off the bat so we don't have another 25 years of non-activity like we did with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Tom, that's a great overview, and simply because we've uh, worked together and collaborated on a number of things in the past, uh, what I'd like to do is sort of um, have a very real discussion uh, about the challenges. And no question this is a meaningful step and a meaningful message, and hopefully it's not just about enforcement, but it's about deterrence, and it's about, I'll call it a prophylactic measure that can help uh, protect companies that are attempting to do business in developing um, nations. Um, let me go back to a fundamental point here, which is the issue of bribery or foreign corrupt practices um, always requires two parties. There's the person making the payment, the person receiving the payment. Uh, one might argue, based upon your analysis, which is, you know, I agree with, is that it's actually a three-step dance. Um, it's about the ask, it's about the response, and it's about, you know, the execution of the corrupt uh, arrangement. And, uh, you know, as a result of, we're both in the government, uh, as a result of what, what I'll refer to as experiences in the private sector, the situation I at least have encountered far, far more regularly than 
the other side of the coin is that when companies go into these developing markets, uh, they actually don't go in with the intent of spending money to facilitate deals, to gain contracts, etc. But they very often, I'll call it inherit, um, a market where certain practices are endemic, they're historical, they've actually been institutionalized. And what's worse is that it's not a level playing field because there are other companies with whom they may be competing who are governed by the laws of other jurisdictions or perhaps can be state-sponsored enterprises. And what I've found is that the line between bribery and extortion is a very, very thin line. And I, I would suggest that it's very often a, a line that depends upon which side of the table you're sitting. And we also know that companies that face enforcement proceedings rarely go to trial. Occasionally you'll, you have them. But the issue of whether I've been extorted or whether I paid a bribe is a, has always philosophically at least been, been a, a line that hasn't been particularly bright. And maybe you can comment on that and, and perhaps a little bit of what this new statute might do to help clarify this and, and give some navigational guidance to companies? Well, again, it's a great question. Philosophically, it's a, it's a fascinating question. Bribery and extortion are not mutually exclusive. Um, when I was a prosecutor, I had a lot of organized crime cases, and sometimes that was bribery and extortion, involved bribery and extortion at the same time. To take one simple example, if you have a drug dealer who um, is threatened by a police officer saying, I'm going to threat, I'm going to shut down your drug operation unless you pay me half of your profits on a weekly basis. And the drug dealer agrees to do so. Is that bribery or is it extortion? And the answer, of course, is it's both. It's extortion by the government, by the police officer, bribery by the um, drug dealer because he's paying the police officer not to enforce the law and to allow his business to continue. So I think we're going to see some of the same issues are going to come up under FIPA. It is theoretically possible the government can charge a company for paying bribes and charge the government official for extorting them, receiving bribes. This is one thing that's important to remember, although extortion is in the the name of the statute here. This is not the Hobbes Act at an international level. It does not require proof of extortion in order to bring a case against the foreign government official. It just requires proof that they took the bribe. So I think we're going to see cases where both sides are prosecuted. We're also going to see cases where only one or the other side is prosecuted, depending on the particular facts. I anticipate that a lot of companies will try to use the statute sort of along the lines that you're suggesting to say, well, we inherited a situation, we didn't really want to pay this bribe, we were threatened by, you know, government, uh, the tax inspectors, that unless we made these payments, they were going to come and shut our business down. That scenario is not a defense of duress under the FCPA. Duress under the FCPA requires a threat of physical harm. Basically, we're going to burn your business down, we're going to, you know, incarcerate your employees, something like that, perhaps. But simply the regulatory inspection, which is so often the mechanism used by foreign government officials, the threat or implementation of a regulatory inspection as a way to extort money from a company does not constitute a defense under the FCPA. I suspect that with FIPA, 
you're going to see more companies trying to position themselves as victims in these schemes and trying to avoid an FCPA prosecution in that way. I think that that's going to be an easier sell now as a result of FIPA than it was in the well, before we had FIPA, because now what they're doing is instead of just saying to the government, oh, don't prosecute us, we were victims, they're saying, don't prosecute us, we were victims, and here's the guy who victimized us, and you can go after him and prosecute him, you'll get a case, and you'll be able to have something to report to Congress. So I think there's now much more incentive for the government, DOJ, to look at both sides of the equation and decide, do we want to prosecute the taker, the giver, both, or neither? And I think that will change the calculus of FCPA prosecutors going forward. Okay, and um, as this evolves, Tom, um, there's the hair on fire moment where a company's been charged with, or finds itself served with FCP-related subpoenas for books and records, right. and they retain outside counsel and, you know, outside counsel begins to get their hands on the issue and tell, maybe you can share with the audience as counsel for a company, for the board, what you're advising the company now mindful that this other act exists and the standard that the Justice Department no doubt will apply will be factually intensive in terms of what happened, but also we'll look at what the company did or should have done in the moment when this corrupt bargain was either introduced or you know, otherwise suggested to the company. Well, I think what they want to do, but they hopefully never get to the situation where they're served with the subpoena for books and records. So this is really a situation where an ounce of prevention is worth 10 pounds of cure. So I think they need to keep doing all the things they've been doing um, under the guidance we have from the government on the FCPA. They should have a strong compliance program. They should have whistleblower hotlines. They should have reporting mechanisms. Um, they should have regular audits, regular risk assessments of their local operations. And they should be training local employees on how to resist bribe demands. This is something I think companies have a lot of the pieces in place. But this is something where I think companies could do better. I've worked with companies to develop scripts for their local employees to use when they're approached for bribes by foreign government officials. And if these are drafted well and if they're tailored to the situation, they can be effective at deterring bribe demands. Companies should obviously continue doing all of that. They should supplement that with training on FIPA, how to use that as part of the talking points to resist the bribe demand. They should be spreading the word among the local community about FIPA in the hopes of deterring bribe demands. If they do all of that, when they're investigated, they have a much better, much better chance of being able to demonstrate that this Oh, I think you called it unholy bargain, this corrupt agreement was struck, that that happened not because we have poor compliance or poor compliance culture or because we were negligent on these issues. Rather, it happened despite our best efforts, not because of the lack of best efforts on our part. That is one of the most important elements in avoiding an FCPA prosecution. So I think that companies should incorporate this into their compliance programs and 
document all of that. So if the worst happens and DOJ, SEC come knocking, they're able to show that they were au courant with developments in the field and they're using every tool at their disposal to try to resist bribe demands. Okay, so um, let me extend the question, which is, and I'll, I'll role play with you, Tom, you're representing the ABC Corporation and they, they have all of those things in place. But nonetheless, Tom, your client ended up paying out seven figures over, it looks like, over three years uh, to various agents and, and officials. Why did your client not report this particular issue? And particularly because we now have this new Anti-Extortion Act in place. Well, there's no obligation to report, obviously. A lot of companies don't report. Um, when that's an, you know, if you get that question from the government, you know, the typical answers are we were continuing to investigate, we hadn't gotten to the bottom of the facts, we were looking at our options, et cetera, et cetera. I find that a lot of times, um, if you don't report, it obviously there are advantages to reporting. It allows you to get on top of the investigation. It allows you to, you know, often it can result in a, in a reduced penalty. But if you don't report, but you've got a good factual showing to make, a persuasive factual showing to make, you can usually end up in the same, um, in the same or close right. to the same place. So I think it's a strategic consideration that every company uh, that every company has to yeah. make. And of course, I'm, I'm touching upon the the proverbial third rail of counseling a company, which is to you know to report or not to report. And um, you know, uh, just to suggest something, where when we detected it, we remediated right away, and things like that is it, always available. But I'm sort of wondering whether, uh, with the passage of this act, uh, a requirement, and we're seeing this in other fields, which I'd actually like to get into with you, but is there implicitly some obligation or requirement that the government is going to look to the company and say, look, we're, we're, we're addressing both sides now, and these are important sort of incidents for us to know about. Uh, do you sort of see that the next step in this is some sort of, I'll call it an additional factor that companies have to weigh that militates towards having to report these things if, in fact, uh, they're going to either obviate or mitigate potential liability? Again, a great and very forward-looking question. I think it will be one factor that they will take into account. I don't think it'll be a, always a decisive factor, but it does put a little more weight on the side of the scale in favor of reporting because now that you've got this, you've got more to go to the government with when you self-disclose. It's not just, oh, we discovered this, we're remediating, which is, you point out, is exactly the right thing to say. Um, but it also lets them say, we're remediating, but here is another target for you. It gives the prosecutor something else to focus on, and it gives the company the opportunity to provide information against the bribe taker, which could lead to a real prosecution on the other end. That's more attractive for DOJ, and it makes the cooperation the company is providing more substantial. I mean, we, we both work with the 5K system as federal prosecutors, and under that, the rule in my district always was you didn't give a 5K letter unless the defendant's cooperation led to some tangible result at the end of the day. Execution of a search warrant, prosecution, hopefully 
for the client, multiple prosecutions coming out of that. Now we've got that situation um, under the FCPA. You can give the government something that they can actually sink their teeth into and make a case. So I do think it, um, it will weigh on the plus side of going in and self-disclosing. As we've discussed, though, there are so many different factors that go into that decision. Each, it's a very case-by-case -case decision for exactly that reason. But I do think that this one will this will be one factor the companies can and should take into account in deciding whether or not to self-disclose. And if they've got good evidence against the bribe takers, that will make self-disclosure a more attractive proposition for them. Okay, and I don't want to expand our conversation too much, but the issue of self-disclosure obviously is playing out in a number of areas. There are affirmative obligations with obviously suspicious activity reporting. Uh, but you're certainly seeing it play out in the cyberspace and corporate obligations to report to the government when they've had a, a breach or some form of, um, of a loss due to uh, a cyber intrusion or, or a security lapse. And that is obviously one of the most hotly contested issues uh, between the private and public sector uh, for a variety of reasons. But let me uh, go back to... Uh, an excellent point that you made, which is, you know, the avoidance of the hair on fire moment when uh, either, you know, the government serves subpoenas, executes a search warrant, makes an arrest, something like that, and then the company is left to scramble and has to do its own independent investigation and has to work with the board, which is um, your point about how to think about this new act as a tool but also, and I, I loved your example, you know, the tax inspectors. Very often, uh, companies, as they're going into a particular market, or if they've been in a market for a while, and maybe there's regime change, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, um, have not fully assessed what the spectrum of corruption risk is. And I, I certainly heard from my days at Goldman when we were working on deals and acquisitions, uh, David, we don't have any contracts with the government. And uh, I think it, th thinking has evolved, obviously, Tom, since then, but the corruption cases that are often brought um, can have nothing to do with, as you know, government contracts, have everything to do with tax issues, inspection of physical plants, the movement of goods in and out. Uh, it can have everything to do with uh, whether what I'll refer to as uh, a company is being positioned, you know, as a for zoning rights to build certain things and et cetera, et cetera. And maybe you can chat about that a little bit, and particularly in light of this new act, but how companies perhaps should rethink what their, I'll call it, their corruption exposures potentially can be overseas in light of both these acts uh, and the types of cases that you're seeing where this new extortion act could have a particular relevancy. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. The presence or absence of government contracts does not, the absence of government contracts, I should say, does not protect you from FCPA risk. I mean, you name multiple situations in which that come up. I've seen a lot of cases involving litigation overseas where local lawyers pay bribes to the court 
on behalf of a company. That has nothing to do with a government contract. It's not where you would think bribery would arise. And you're, you're referencing the corruption of judges and administrative hearing officers, et cetera. Exactly. Judges, I mean, we've seen a lot of cases like that. And the all of this suggests that before you go into the market, you need to understand where the corruption risks are in that market. You need to do an initial risk assessment. You should hire specialists with local knowledge to help you identify the risk areas and then build that into your local compliance program, your compliance program tailored to local conditions. That's the kind of thing DOJ likes to see. That what they don't like to see, of course, is just the paper program, one size fits all across the world. That's sort of the lazy way of doing compliance. The good way of doing compliance is to roll up your sleeves, understand the local conditions, and then build into your local compliance program protections against the local risks you've identified in your risk assessment. So I think all of that, you know, as I say, all of that is important. And I think that FIPA will contribute to that because it gives the company an extra tool to help resist bribe demands. Um, there are also provisions, not necessarily in FIPA, but, you know, it was passed at the same time, creating a position of anti-corruption officers at foreign embassies. Um, a lot of the reporting that DOJ and state are going to have to make under FIPA will come from foreign embassies. So I'm hoping this will create an atmosphere in which companies are working more closely with the U.S. government, both here and through overseas embassies, to identify corruption risks and prevent the prevent these situations from occurring in the first place. I think to be effective, there really needs to be public-private partnership in this area. Um, historically, a lot of companies have been reluctant to report, report bribe demands to the U.S. government, to local embassies, lest they find themselves the subjects of FCPA investigations. Hopefully, under FIPA, they will feel more comfortable doing that um, because the facts will suggest a different potential outcome, i.e. a prosecution of the bribe taker rather than the company. So I think this is an important development, but like everything, FIPA will be a tool. Tools are only as good as the people who use them. And so I think companies should really think about how they're going to use this and incorporate them and incorporate it into their compliance programs. Tom, let me uh, build upon um, that last response a little bit. Um, you, you have been very, you were very instrumental in, uh, we had a coin that only had one side to it, a tail side, I'll call it, meaning the FCPA. And you've been central and instrumental in, you know, putting a heads to that coin uh, because this issue of fraud and corruption um, and doing business overseas, you know, does require two sides. Uh, there is the bribery, there's potential extortion, and we can get, I, I don't want to get into the, 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 what I'll refer to as, you know, the weeds of Hobbs Act versus, you know, how extortion is being defined here. But it strikes me, and just building upon a comment that you, that you made about hopefully this will lead to further cooperation and collaboration between the private sector and the government around this important issue and leveling the playing field. But in the interim, um, I'd like to maybe flip that a little bit, which would be about the government's potential role or the opportunity, maybe a better term, for the government to assist corporations as they're doing business around the world. And by that, uh, again, I'm drawing upon my experience in the private sector. I would not have had this view if I'd just been on the government side. But as companies go into various markets, um, the nature of 
how information is held is often asymmetrical. Very often, obviously, companies will know some things the government doesn't know, but uh, the government will very much be aware of the environment, the political players, the types of reports around, you know, corrupt practices and, and you know, even sanctions violations and that type of thing. And they'll see companies come into these markets and very often they'll be not fully informed uh, and maybe not fully informed about the individuals. But the government may be in a position, and whether this is a State Department question, Tom, or a Commerce Department or Justice Department or SEC or Treasury, don't we also have an opportunity to give companies that are going into these various markets, uh, and most of them are developing, um, better information and guidance? And particularly if there's something that the government is seeing early, uh, rather than have the companies just you know, have to rely on their own resources and diligence and lawyers, and then ultimately there can be an accident. But companies uh, are certainly competing against other companies that are playing by different rules, and some of them are state-sponsored. And so I guess my question to you is, you know, with the enactment of this statute and the reporting that goes to Congress, uh, do you see also an opportunity for the government itself to step in and help corporations? Yeah, this is a really, really tricky question because a lot of times the government, the U.S. government, the embassy is going to want to encourage U.S. investment in the country. And I think that's a good thing. I think that ethical U.S. businesses operating around the world are a great engine to promote the rule of law. So we want U.S. companies to come into these countries and to play by the rules. Um, it's You don't want to dampen their enthusiasm by making it sound like the entire country is corrupt and you can't do business there without paying bribes. So the message has to be conveyed carefully. Um, I think it has to be conveyed in the sense that it's a high-risk environment, however you can operate um, you can operate compliantly here. The whole idea of naming, identifying individuals who may be notorious bribe takers is also a tricky one. Obviously, there is value to doing that because it you know prevents companies from getting into you know business deals with these people. On the other hand, you got to be careful because they could be attacking people without any kind of judicial finding of guilt, which raises questions about the rule of law. And then also, if I were in the government, I'd be concerned. You know, we identified Minister A, Deputy Minister B, and, you know, advisor to the President C as potential risks when doing business. If a company then pays a bribe to somebody who's not on the list that I've given them, they may come back and say, well, look, you know, they told us these were the corrupt officials. They didn't know to identify anyone else. So therefore, we relied on that. And we thought we were good paying, uh, you know, doing business with this other person. So I think it's very tricky, um, but I think it's got to be, to answer your question, yes, there is an opportunity for the government to do more with the private sector in these foreign countries. I think that how they do that has got to be thought out very, very carefully, and it's really got to be a scalpel rather than, you know, a hammer in terms of doing this to be effective. I also think that, you know, there are a couple other ways that FIPA might help. I think that, one, if there are U.S. prosecutions of foreign government bribe takers, that will hopefully incentivize the foreign governments to bring cases against their own 
government officials who are taking bribes. That was really why this never this was not part of the FCPA in the first place. The hope was that the foreign governments would um, would take action against their own officials, which in an ideal world is what would happen. Hopefully, this will incentivize them to do that. Um, the other thing is, I I think that there should be some sort of system, sort of like we had with proffer agreements when we were when we were prosecutors, whereby companies could go into the embassy report bribe demands comfortable in the knowledge that what they reported would not be used against them to start an FCPA investigation of them. If there were some sort of safe harbor for companies to report to far to U.S. embassies overseas, that would mean the U.S. government would have more information, the companies would have more information that they could use, and they could do it. But to make that work, they'd have to be able to do it in a uh, risk-free environment. So they could come in and report to one government official about that, and that person would be precluded from sharing information about that company that could be used against them in a, uh, in a um, FCPA prosecution. So again, to come back to your question, yes, there is an opportunity for better cooperation between public and private sectors overseas. How that is structured re requires some uh, very precise forethought to make sure that it is effective and doesn't have an unintended consequence. Would agree. And um, again, there are parallels to, to the cybersecurity threat about what the government is seeing and where it's coming from and how much they are in a position to share with the private sector without compromising their own confidential processes. Um, there's a further parallel, I think, Tom, you know, when people are hit with a ransomware attack, do they, you know, do they pay, we'll call it a ransom, but do they pay the bribe, you know, um, and, you know, as a victim of extortion or not, which implicates all sorts of other issues, including sanctions compliance, and, you know, um, the government has views about whether by making the payment you're only facilitating and enabling and encouraging more activity. So I think, to your point, this is a very nuanced area, but um, uh, certainly I would hope, Tom, that through people such as yourself, um, that there can be continued thinking around this issue and that this is not just an enforcement matter, but this is an opportunity uh, where perhaps guidance can be given. And of course, I'll remind the audience that the government does issue guidance. They have export control in place. They list people with sanctions. And you see very often uh, various media leaks and other uh, what I'll refer to as legal filings, which often can give a tip-off about the issues and risks and, you know, whom to do business with, albeit it's far from perfect. So I, I love the analogy to a scalpel and that maybe there can be some additional surgery that can be done around this area, Tom. I, I completely agree. The ransomware analogy is an excellent one, and it's not one I'd thought of. And there are lessons to be learned from I think for the people dealing with ransomware from the bribery world and vice versa, people dealing with bribery risks from the ransomware, ransomware world. So I think, and I think what we're talking about here, I think this is really sort of like anti-corruption 2.0, how to take all of this and create right. effective cooperation between the government and companies in a way that doesn't kill U.S. investment, doesn't scare companies about FCPA prosecutions. Um, but it's not just doing nothing either. So I think that this is this is where it's going, and we need more thought leadership um, in this in this area. And it'll be interesting to see how it how it develops. But I really like the ransomware analogy. I hadn't thought of that. 
and, and by the way, I'd like to make a linguistic uh, suggestion in the in the hopefully the continued conversation and look forward to collaborating with you some more, Tom. But when you say cooperation, it has such a negative tone, cooperation with the government, <laughs> right? Uh, and and, and I, I don't mean just in a, you know, a traditional criminal sense, the guy's a rat or the government's ratting or wh whatever, uh, but there's a great deal, of, as you know, when the Gallup polls have shown a distrust of the government. And so, I, you know, we should come up with a better term, whether it's, a, you know, information sharing or, you know, something. But uh, I find the word cooperation these days, particularly um, with um, what I'll refer to as younger generation, has a different connotation than we understood it uh, back when. Last question before we um, stop, and this is not one I know you can answer, but, you know, uh, I'll quote Spike Lee on this, we shall see what we shall see. Uh, with the implementation of this new statute and enforcement, I guess, to come. Uh, since you've spent a lot of time, I'll call it broadly, in the State Department area, Tom, is it possible that what we're going to see are retaliatory enforcement actions and arrests of uh, corporate officials uh, that are doing business in these areas? And I think about some of the recent quid pro quo in terms of the arrests and charges out of Russia and China, uh, et cetera. But to the extent the U.S. government starts actually charging uh, some of these uh, officials, which they've always done, and extradition and other types of things, but now that this is on the books and if enforcement actions step up and there's reporting to Congress, um, any concerns that you have about retaliation? Hopefully, it is a risk. Hopefully, we won't see it too much of it. I mean, as you point out, they've done this. We remember, you and I are old enough to remember Noriega in 1989. There have been other cases against foreign government officials. I don't think that the retaliation, it's not, you know, there have been some horrible cases out of Russia recently. I don't think any of them were prompted by U.S. government prosecutions of Russian government officials. Right. Um, there's a risk, but hopefully... Um, we would, you know, I, I hope that the response on the part of foreign governments is to prosecute their own government officials who are taking bribes. A government official who's taking a bribe is doing it to the detriment of his employer, i.e. the foreign government, to the detriment of the foreign population. So the foreign government should have a real interest in prosecuting these people. So hopefully that'll be one of the responses. And, and hopefully well, there'll be fewer well, bribe demands across the board and we'll have a more transparent atmosphere throughout the world. We can't exclude the possibility there may be some retaliation here or there. Um, let's hope not, and let's hope that if that does happen, the U.S. government responds appropriately and, deter or and in addition, deters those retaliatory acts in the first place. Tom, I want to thank you for your time, your insights, your continued work. I'll, I'll argue, notwithstanding your years in the private sector, uh, so much of what you do very much is in, uh, in the public service. And so thanks for taking the time today, and I look forward to a continued conversation also working with Thank you. Thank you so much, David, for having me. As I say, it's, uh, I always enjoy our conversations and I hope we can continue to collaborate in this area. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. 
That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. Thanks for listening.